Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hi, welcome back to Evidence-Based Therapist. We are doing part two of our uh, podcast on dependency and the treatment of complex post-traumatic stress disorder and dissociative disorders. Mm -hmm. Part two. Part Part two. two. That's right. Part one was great. Part two, we're going to get into some more specifics, Mm -hmm. talk about details of structural dissociation. Pragmatics. Pragmatics and some Mm. other fun things. But before we get into that, we want to talk about Patreon. It is our favorite way to connect with you guys as listeners and let you be part of our community and ask questions. So you can find that on patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. And you can have a look at the different tiers of membership that we have and lets you get access to different resources like live recordings of sessions and lots of other fun stuff. So once again, that's patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. And we'd love to connect with you that way. We do have a cool goal coming up. Oh, we do. Which is that we're getting video recording equipment. And Caleb, I still, I've tried to describe to the other people at Beyond Healing Center why we need the video for the podcast. I still can't get it. Can you say why? I just think it provides, well, one, that every listener has an image of us in their heads. Yes. Like I know you do. Unless you have aphantasia. We would like to disconfirm that experience. (laughs) Yeah. I want you to have a real image to my face. Mm. But before that happens, you should really thoroughly explore what your personal version of us in your head is. Because that's always interesting. Just outline it. Yeah. You know. If you are a sketch artist, I'd like to see that. Oh, yeah, please. Send, send yeah, send that. those in. If you yeah. send us what you think we look like before you know in sketch form, we will send you something. Like, definitely a sticker or For more sure. than a sticker. I don't even know. We're, yeah, I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll do anything. Yeah, <laughs> Just know that they will be framed and hung on the wall at BHC. <laughs> Maybe tatted. I don't know. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, that back. might be my first yeah. one. Yeah. But your, I think your first video, tat is yeah. great. I think video would give the uh, viewers a view of how excited we get yes and how often we're like like behind a mic you can't really tell how like my back is straight and i'm leaned over and mm-hmm. i'm like or how much we're gesticulating yes. yes yeah or the big eyes yeah. big eyes yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so all those pro social cues <laughs> they don't they don't get to see and i think they would be really that's fun that's true to see us and also you'd get bloopers yeah yeah we could do bloopers that, and that lots of long um prolonged eye contact between me and the viewer <laughs> yeah they're gonna sign on for that yeah huh? they might <laughs> yeah you never know yeah so with all that being said our goal is to reach a thousand dollars a month 1500 oh okay we're okay, already we're strangely there. almost at a thousand oh wow okay so it's amazing yeah, yeah the numbers people amazing. have run the numbers and decided that we are allowed to buy this new equipment when we reach that goal so help us get there yes because we'd love to we would love to it'd be super fun all right so without further ado we're going to dive right into um the yeah. second part of this article and there is a lot to cover but we've tried to narrow it down to what we think are kind of the most salient aspects that we want to share with you guys and really highlight um, and give you kind of the the theory that we think is really relevant. 
Um, but then also the practice yeah. of that theory and what does this look like applied in real life, in real sessions with real humans, uh, et cetera, because we know that that's, um, you know, one of the most valuable parts of listening to people talk about theory is, okay, so now what do we do with it? Yeah. Cause the mm-hmm. ideas are brilliant and beautiful. Um, but the practice of it is yeah. the most important. Well, in the article, I really appreciate this about the article. It's a long article, mm-hmm. but they took that length to take advantage of, um, kind of what you're saying, mm-hmm. which is to let the first part be about the theory. Mm-hmm. And then the second part, let's start weaving in and end in yeah. very practical yeah. application. Yeah. So I we're going to try to kind of do both. A mirroring. Yeah. Yes. A mirroring of how they did it in the article. So yeah. Caleb, will you kind of start us out with where we're going to start with the yeah. theory? Yes. So last week, if you can remember, if you have just listened to it, we talked about dependency mm-hmm. and their secure and secure dependency. And one of the kind of transitions from that part to what we're going to talk about tonight is this layout sort of of what you may call the personality or the psyche or just the internal makeup of the client yeah, mm-hmm. and how that interacts with dependency in mm-hmm. the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder and chronic PTSD and, and just dissociation in the larger context. So one of the um, frameworks that the authors lay out is the difference between apparently normal personalities, apparently normal parts or parts Mm -hmm. and emotional parts Mm -hmm. or personalities. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Bridget, do you want to kind of walk through? Yeah. And I think we should kind of give just for the listener, just our very practical understanding of what those are. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll start kind of for me, um, the apparently normal parts are what, um, if you asked somebody to just, you know, tell me about yourself, mm-hmm. these are who are, who is going to be contributing to that conversation internally, you know, mm-hmm. and we have a very sort of spectrumized view of dissociation, um, at Beyond Healing Center. And that kind of means for us, when we hear somebody talking, we're hearing multiple parts right. of them, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's the, uh, part that feels that they need to, you know, be presentable or to please or mm-hmm. to be. Um, a rule follower or a rule breaker or whatever else, um, literally a million different variations. But the apparently normal part would be what would come to the surface um, for the person just naturally. They believe they're just being themselves. Right. This right. is who I know myself to be. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is the part of me that interfaces with right. the rest of the world on a regular basis. It is the the me, the personality that I have curated. Yes. Um, for lots of different reasons and environmental, you know, shaping factors that I have deemed this is the best me to yes. come forward um, in normal social situations. Yeah. And that's going to get me the best results. Yeah. And I love the way you're using that language because it, it foreshadows what we hear when people are talking, mm-hmm. but often we don't experience it that way at all. Right. It, it's, it just feels like, well, yeah, that's, that's me. That's mm-hmm. how I do it. That's mm-hmm. how you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, why did I do it that way? Well, that's just how you're supposed to do it. Well, and also it kind of, you know, signals to this idea that maybe we have conscious control and choice, that that's something that we're choosing to do. But for the majority of humans, I would say 99% of humans, they're not consciously aware that, oh, this is my apparently normal part stepping (laughs) forward right now to interface with the rest of society. No, that's entirely subconscious. And as therapists, we spend a lot of time introducing clients to the idea that, hey, there's more than one of you in there. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. A myriad. Yeah. And understanding ourselves that way is really, really helpful yeah. for the therapeutic process and also just for self-compassion and self-understanding in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a critical point is that often 
there's a part of therapy which is just getting the client to be open Mm -hmm. to the reality that their apparently normal part which they view as completely themselves yeah has more that's right and those are what would be called the emotional parts yes and the apparently normal part does not like the intrusive tendencies of the emotional uh, parts. There, yeah. That is such a big statement. Yes. Like there, there's so there's so much to that statement yeah. and very, you know, theoretical ideas, but also incredibly practical mm-hmm. um, experiences, both as a therapist, as a client, as a human in general. Of what does it mean for my apparently normal part to be nervous or even angry and mm-hmm. resistant to the intrusion of yes. an emotional part? Mm-hmm. So, on the very top layer of that we experience that all the time as a therapist when a client says i'm so sorry i'm getting so upset about this i don't know why i'm crying so much about this i thought i was over this right so right there in that super common moment we're experiencing with our client the split between the ANP, the apparently normal part, and an emotional part, which is apparently housing some big affect that they weren't yeah. aware of. And then here comes that affect, that emotional part, to intrude on the presentation yes. mm-hmm. of the apparently normal part. And then we watch them have to wrestle around internally and contend with the fact right. that they just had this emotional part invade on their session. How dare this emotion show up like this? This that's was right. not in the plan. Yeah. Um, and so that's just a really, you know, kind of simple example of what do we mean when we say the ANP is resistant to the intrusion of an emotional part. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think the definition of an emotional part is on the surface really clear and obvious. It's mm-hmm. a dissociated part that houses a specific emotion. Mm-hmm. But the complexity of that is as varied as the complexity of humans. Yes. Um, because the, the way that those parts get dissociated is a direct result of trauma. Yeah. And mm-hmm. even beyond trauma, it's just a direct result of our lived experience of how, how yeah, how did people, other people, and how did the world respond when I was young when this particular emotion showed up? Yeah. Did it allow for the integration of that emotional experience into the rest of my personality? Hopefully, mm-hmm. but more likely, it did not. It resulted yeah. in shame, punishment, some kind of negative experience, even just teasing and embarrassment. Right. And then in the midst of that experience, the nervous system says, oh, apparently that's not great for this interfacing with other humans. So I'm just going to, yeah, out. yeah, we're just going to section that off and tuck it over there in the corner. And now we have a dissociated emotional part. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the A&P is very, it's almost like um, the A&P chooses to unremember yeah the emotional part like that once that cut happens the apparently normal part uh others that emotional part as not me right um and caleb i know you're gonna get jacked on that (laughs) yeah um but but (laughs) i think not me i think the language is really important because the apparently normal part the reason it gets so upset Mm -hmm. that an emotional part comes back is it it made a very deliberate plan and choice not to recognize it as me. Right, right. Well, and not to integrate it and allow it to be a part of my expressed personality. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. People can't know this about me. Right. Well, I don't want to know this about me. Exactly. I don't want to know that I'm sad. I mean, who the heck wants to know that they're like sad all the time? Let's just dissociate that away. To bring it to this article that I'm dependent? Yes. Oh, Mm. Lord. No one can know. Yeah. So in relevance to this article, the idea of an emotional part that houses the affect state, the feeling state of dependency gets really relevant. Yes. 
because as we talk, we're going to talk about this concept of addressing phobias in therapy. And we're not talking about spider phobias here. No, we're we're talking about the much more nuanced phobias of things like attachment. intimacy phobia, yes. attachment phobia, dependency phobia. And the way that these emotional parts react to being thrust into a situation with a therapist where the idea of attachment and dependency and vulnerability and intimacy is like right there on the table in front of them, we're enacting and activating all of those phobias. Uh And as therapists, we need to know what to do with that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm reminded of Harry Stack Sullivan's idea that the self is uh, a combination of the reflected appraisals from the other Mm -hmm. and that emotional parts become dissociated based on the reflected appraisal of the other through development yes and the integration of that part Mm. is uh, necessarily dependent upon the reflected appraisal of the welcoming yes from the therapist yes which involves some dependency from the client it has to onto the therapist in order for that part to come into the scene and be integrated so i'm I'm thinking of kind of a a picture analogy to help with that because, you know, those words um, like hold so much that it's really hard to kind of nuance it in very simplistic language to really get the meaning of it. But when you say that, the picture that I see in my head is when a client comes to therapy, effectively we can imagine them standing in the middle of the room surrounded by mirrors. And each mirror is that reflection that they have received previously from somebody else in their history. Mm -hmm. And these mirrors are the things that have been allowed to be integrated into their personality. Mm -hmm. Well, there, I can look in that mirror and see me as successful student me. That's allowed, Mm -hmm. right? I can welcome that part into my personality. And we look around that circle of mirrors that they've, you know, built around themselves and we see the reflections that they've had in previous encounters and relationships of this is what was accepted. Yeah. This is what was reflected back to me. And they can even be negative things. Exactly. I was just going to say that. It doesn't have to be all positive. This is also the overeater me. Yeah. This is also the the, lazy me. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The Mm pro-symptom shame beliefs. Exactly. Yes. Oh, and you know, if we have somebody dealing with religiosity, the sinner me, Mm -hmm. right? And so we have this collection of mirrors that is reflecting back to us the identity and that is the, uh, the formation of that apparently normal part. But then there's another layer of all of the parts of self that have not been adequately and acceptingly reflected back and they're still there but they just don't have a mirror so they Mm -hmm. cannot see those aspects of themselves so imagine how disorienting it is to the client when for the first time the therapist shows up with a brand new mirror yeah it says hey let me show you a side of you a part of you that I'm willing to engage with, that I'm willing to accept and talk to and have a relationship with, but you don't even know that it's there. Mm -hmm. How disorienting is that? And in that moment, we get all of those dependency issues of, oh my gosh, you're the first person that's ever seen me in this way. What does that mean? Do I need you for the rest of my life in order to allow this part of me to be me? Or will I reject you? Yeah, because that's too much. Intolerable. Mm that level of recognition yes. so for some it, it is intolerable because yeah. that if somebody saw that part of me that means that mm-hmm. i was getting ready to face absolute rejection, rejection. absolutely total rejection absolutely so if a therapist sees it well they're going to reject me too yep because that's what has always happened yeah yeah mm-hmm. and I, I i like 
this point as sort of like hearkening back to um, some of the earlier earlier episodes we did on like attachment theory mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this concept of ANPs and EPs yes. um, really uh, brings some nuance and complexity to the uh, attachment styles yes. because preoccupied also has ANPs yes. and EPs. Whereas there's like this part of me, like initially, if I would have heard this a while ago, I probably would have said, oh, EPs are probably just preoccupied and ANPs, which are more dismissive avoidant mm. in their presentation, go to the more, but no, it's, yeah. it's yeah, both. preoccupied has both. Dismissive, dismissive has both. Yeah. Disorganized. Disorganized has, has what we'll talk about in the more um, complex dissociative yes. structure. But yeah, I think, I think that part of what's happening in the different attachment styles has to do with what aspects of self have been previously rejected and therefore dissociated versus what parts were accepted or deemed useful enough to keep around. Yeah. Right. So in the preoccupied attachment style, there are aspects of self that are highly emotive, highly emotional, Mm -hmm. even can uh, express as needy and childlike in the other's direction. But there's been enough experience that says, hey, you should keep doing that because that gets you results. Yeah. You know, like they don't necessarily like it and there's kind of some push-pull that goes on. Seems to have an effect. Yeah, but it's still getting the job done, so we're Mm going to keep that around. Versus the dismissive attachment style that would say, oh, that needy part of me, well, that doesn't exist. That has never gotten me a result that I like, so I am going to dissociate that EP away out of my normal self Uh and not express that anymore so i think like that attachment style it's about what has been accepted and what has been rejected in the personality mm-hmm. yeah i think one like the next step would be to then talk about the next part of the article which is uh, all about the framework of structural dissociation yeah. yeah and they lay out a framework of primary secondary and tertiary mm-hmm. yeah uh, dissociation which i think if you're thinking of crittenton's uh-huh. developmental model of Call back the attachment again. yeah mm-hmm. if you want to go look at that article and her model you can almost see the mm-hmm. secure as you know integrated right. and then you get this primary around kind of the one third uh-huh. and then you get the the secondary yeah. and like the two thirds and then at that bottom where like the six o'clock on the clock is that's that really tertiary complex yes mm-hmm. um in its in a really sharp um, definition. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So speaking of sharp definition, can we give some sharp definition to primary, secondary, Man. tertiary, structural dissociation? Yes. And this it is important. Depends on who you ask. Of it does. What those words mean. <laughs> um, but because they, they're so article, common. Yeah. This article gives um, definitions of its own that is really relevant to dependency. So we can kind of circle around that and then add some nuance of our own if we want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So primary dissociation would be um, when there is a single EP and a single ANP. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be some sort of uh, trauma, typically in like an acute stress disorder or simple PTSD. Mm-hmm. You have that kind of splitting. And that's their paradigm right. as far as their interpretation. Yeah. Um, we at PhD would probably nuance that a little bit with attachment ruptures and yes. Yes. the development across yeah. time. but. Um, for them, primary is more related to acute stress disorder and simple PTSD, where you have a single EP and a single ANP. Yes. So an example of that to kind of help um, with understanding, I think, you know, somebody 
um, is functioning pretty well and then has a, you know, horrific experience, car wreck, et cetera. And the terror as a result of significant life threat is so overwhelming in that moment. And the, the dysregulation that happens in our organism, you know, in a moment of terror like that, um, it sets us up for dissociation in a really remarkable way. And so we would dissociate away that terror born of life threat and not integrate that reality into the rest of our personality because we don't know how to live with that. Yeah. How, do you, how do you live normal life with the ever-present emotional awareness that I could die at any minute or my kids could die at any minute. Um, no. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm going to dissociate that away, yes. right? Um, and now that's different than the simple cognitive knowledge that I could die at any time. And we're not talking about that. It's the actual felt experience, the emotional lived experience of that level of terror. I cannot hold that in my body and walk around and live normal life. So in an event like that, we would dissociate away that terror, that panic feeling. And now we have my apparently normal personality and this one dissociated EP that's housing that terror. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that reframes activation or like a flashback or Which, a yes. trigger. Quote I think and, and I think simple PTSD um, really demonstrates the autonomic ingenuity right. of structural dissociation because that is a beautiful way to deal with the completely overwhelming event without mm-hmm. uh a, without proper attunement yes. without accurate attunement um and that again is a call back to crittenden i think there's gonna be a theme uh, we need a sign that call says back call back to, to yeah. crittenden. crittenden just constantly call back to crittenden call back to crittenden <laughs> call back to crittenden every time you listen to ebt start by listening to that episode that's and right. then listen to the next one it's, <laughs> it's always going to be pinned <laughs> right to the yeah. top of our that's page right, that's right yeah did you listen to episode two you should you should we're in episode 200 but you should listen to episode two go back to two yeah. it's so important Absolutely. so then the there's the secondary dissociation getting uh, more which, complex which is uh yeah more complex variation um they would say is typically found in ptsd trauma related borderline personality disorders and dis- dissociative disorders not otherwise specified and what that looks like is two or more eps with one still A&P. a single a and p yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i think this sets up you know the way that i kind of like to view it is if the a and p and this is the way i draw it for my clients and consultees if the a and p is in a circle the A&P is there. You've got a lingering EP mm-hmm. on the outside that has an arrow kind of pointing into the center of the circle, that it's mm-hmm. kind of jumping down. That's just uh, primary structural dissociation. Secondary is when there's now multiple EPs out there, but still one A&P. So there's still, this is who I know myself to be, right. but there are these other intrusive parts mm-hmm. that are showing up in very different ways. One might be very dependent. Mm-hmm. One might be very independent. Yes. Uh, and so they want different things, and so they'll jump in and out depending on what's going on in the environment. And that explanation is a great um, explanation of disorganized attachment. Yes. Right? I have this part of me that moves into neediness, and then this other part of me that is very dismissive of any neediness and attachment. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just talk about how amazing that is? Like, I'm just blown away by the human nervous system and the emergence of the psyche in that way. Mm-hmm. It can integrate horrific mm-hmm. terrors in life and still operate pretty clean. Mm-hmm. A and P just walking around doing its thing, then just getting bombarded by an EP mm-hmm. and then we'll snap back into A and P, A and P, A and P, EP. Whoa. A and P. 
as it jumps back in and out. Yes. I just think it's so amazing. And it just really reframes how we understand like borderline uh, personality disorder or things that are just like, that person's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember in graduate school, the professors even would just say, refer. you refer a borderline. Mm-hmm. You just refer them because you can't, you can't understand it. It's nonsensical. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense. It's actually a perfect, you know, it's an equal and opposite reaction. Right. Yeah. And and if you, like, I love your your excitement and it's getting me excited because then, you know, you think about ego state and yes. mm-hmm. the EPs and the adaptability of the nervous system to always have, like, this lingering, lingering desire and call to yeah. say there's a part of you hurting, even if it was 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Do not forget. Yes, you can never us. forget. Yeah. And like that memory of the nervous system is it's unbelievable. Is yeah, it blows me away. Yeah. It's so cool. It is seriously so cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. I think like that example of borderline and how frustrating that presentation can be therapeutically, but when you understand it in this context that presentation gives us so much information about what parts of them were accepted and what parts were rejected for somebody that has a borderline presentation. This was a child who only ever got what they needed by going to extremes. That's right. In either direction. Yeah. So that's the entirety of their personality that they understand. Yeah. And why would you do it any different? Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the rigidity of the system is I have two choices. I can either be this version of me or this version of me. And they're diametrically opposed to each other. Yeah. And I will, you know, lightning speed ping pong back and forth between these two versions of self. And to the people outside, this looks really disorienting, but I only got two channels guys. And I'm just flipping back and forth between the two channels that I have and but I also can go to work and seem relatively normal. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. and that's <laughs> to everybody where, else. Yes, yeah. and that's where I think when you look at something inside the family of origin, that sort of polarity mm-hmm. bouncing between the two EPs makes a lot of sense. But then when uh, to the person to to the A and P, it's almost just like, well, yeah, I'm just trying to deal with my activation. Yeah. I don't I mean, know that, how else options. to do it. Yeah. But then you put them in a non-traumatic situation, and now it's chaos. Yeah. Now I don't know how to mm-hmm. make sense of my lived experience right. or how other people are reacting to right. me or and not reacting. Do you know what feels safer to just sort of treat everything like it's a threat? Because right. I know how to handle that. Mm-hmm. I know how to handle it if I am always expecting In rejection chaos. and always expecting that somebody is about to leave me or abandon me or be mean to me. So I'm just going to keep utilizing those strategies. Which means yeah. I'll find it. Yeah. If it doesn't exist, I'll make it yeah. up. I don't yeah. care. Yeah. yeah, It doesn't actually need to be happening. <laughs> yeah, which, it, there just needs to be enough similarity that it triggers that same response pattern. Yeah, mm-hmm. call need back to, ground. to Perry. <laughs> I need to ground right now. I'm getting way too spun up. I can feel myself. Well, hold up, because I'm about to call back to Perry. Oh, so come on, stay now. activated. Okay, okay. Stay activated. Okay, okay, okay I'm in it. Because uh-huh. Perry would say that you know that development over time is implanted in motor vestibular memory <laughs> and affective memory. And so mm-hmm. your body is almost projecting. It has to. Because it's so used to that level yes. of activation. Yes. And then you get these seemingly very... And un- this is how I explain it to clients is it your body believed that this strategy was the only thing that was going to mm-hmm. keep it alive. Mm-hmm. It doesn't... It, it can't believe that it has to change that. That's why change is so hard, especially for these particularly disintegrated presentations like borderline. Mm-hmm. Why are borderline so hard to treat? Well, because their system clings to it as their only means of survival. Right. To mean 
anything outside of this, you will die. Mm -hmm. Or you will be rejected, which means you're one step away from death. Right. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean, why do I keep doing what I keep doing? Mm -hmm. Your body still believes it's your only way of survival. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there is very little rationally, cognitively, intellectually that can combat that deeply held belief because it's not a belief. It is just an, we... a reality. Okay. And so it's a nervous system-based reality. I don't know how deep to get down this <laughs> rabbit hole. And they go into it in the article, though. But they I do. feel like to not bring up Ponksep here is okay. we can't because what you just said no i know what you just said was there's not a logical mm -hmm. explanation for this because we got to stay away from the primary secondary tertiary though because i feel like nuancing that to Ponksep, i don't think yeah. we can Ponksep do it. uses <laughs> that same framework just for the listeners of primary secondary tertiary so we're going to try to talk about it in maybe like language Let's of switch like to our um okay our language mm -hmm. okay. reptilian mammalian mm -hmm. okay rational. yes yes yeah cool everybody down yeah yep. well okay. you're gonna have to explain what you mean okay keep going. so yes okay so to mel's point which we're not going to spend long here i just have to get it out or my brain is going to haunt <laughs> get me stuck there. yes so uh to mel's point which was that there's to these borderline presentations and these secondary structural dissociation uh presentations like borderline or something like that mm -hmm. where you've got one a and p in the middle and two eps or more hanging out up top it's not a logical process because those aren't the areas of the brain that are actually being affected mm -hmm. which means so logical is associated with that rational right. top prefrontal cortex, prefrontal cortex brain yeah, but then you got a layer down deeper into the mammalian brain which is uh the limbic brain or the feeling brain there's different limbic and diencephalon yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, where a lot of our kind of sense of emotions comes from. But then even uh, deeper than that is our reptilian brain, mm -hmm. which... Uh, also called brainstem. Brainstem. Brainstem, hind brain. Autonomic nervous system. Yeah, yeah. central nervous system, those, those processes. The emergence of secondary structural dissociation occurs within the reptilian and mammalian brain. Yes. So that means that the dissociation is actually... Um, it, it is what is generating the logic, quote right. unquote, that is operating from. Right. So if you start, if that seed is already, quote unquote, illogical, mm -hmm. what comes up to the top is going to be even more disintegrated. Right. Yeah. And right. the language you used was it's not logical, it's reality. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which to them, the narratives they have for why things are happening in their life or why they are they acting feel totally the way they are. They feel totally it's because mm -hmm. in a neurosequential dependence in their brain, they're going from these affective circuits up to these neocortical circuits. Yes. When they become regulated enough to access that level mm -hmm. of like integration yes. and make sense of it only based in that affective circuitry. Okay. So say it again, slower. Neurosequential emergence. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that starts at the bottom of the reptilian brain yeah. and bubbles up to the top through the mammalian and the rational mm -hmm. brain. Okay. I want you to say it again, but just really help because we haven't talked about this at all yeah. on this podcast yeah. yet. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, Apologies. so I'm going to offer a mental image because I think it helps track the language while you're talking. So if you can visualize the human nervous system, including the brain all the way up to the prefrontal cortex whole brain here remembering that what we're talking about is always electrical when we're talking about nervous system and brain we're talking about electricity so imagine a lightning bolt mm -hmm. something in the environment produces the electrical signal it hits our body right it hits our nervous system that signal comes up 
towards our brain and it first hits our brainstem, mm-hmm. right? That is the the mediating yeah. spot Command between, center of the brain. Yeah, between the rest of our system and those higher brain regions. So if you can imagine a bolt of electricity coming through your body, hitting your brainstem, and when it hits your brainstem, that's where that neurosequential uh, firing gets really, really relevant because it's going to happen in a specific order, and that bolt of lightning is going to move from brainstem up to prefrontal cortex. Yeah, bottom up. Bottom up in that order. And as far as electricity goes, that seems really, really fast. But in lived experience, a whole lot happens between when it hits your brainstem and when it actually makes it to your prefrontal cortex. Yeah. There's a whole lot of life that happens in between there. Yeah, like mm-hmm. all of your behavior. Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yes, yeah. yeah. Anything that we would call reflex, uh-huh. anything that we would call, oh, I don't know why I did that. Yeah, anything that we would call spontaneous, like all of that is happening in those milliseconds between it hit my brainstem versus it finally made it to my prefrontal cortex. So from there, with that mental image in mind, let's talk about neurosequential firing. Yeah, so you could almost, even like to go from there, like you could think of seven trees mm. that have oh. their oh. roots oh. in oh. the... <laughs> We're reacting because that's just a really beautiful image. That's, that's where about we need to the video. Yeah, this is where we need the video. People missed it. We all just like. <laughs> oh, it's like we got hit with electricity right there. Yeah. Yeah. So seven trees are your seven basic affective circuits that have their roots in the hindbrain and in the diencephalon. So you have these um, electrical currents that are afferent with an A that go from the body in, up. up the brain. Mm-hmm. So bottom up. Yep. And what will happen is your brain will organize that sensory experience and choose an affective circuit that will engage behaviors to mitigate danger or meet a need. Yes. And right here, right here is where dissociation gets really relevant. Absolutely. Because our circuitry that has been fully integrated and utilized successfully in previous experience, those are the trees that are most likely going to be the best conduits for that electricity up to the higher regions of the brain. The dissociated affect states or affect circuits are the ones that are underutilized or dissociated away. And so dissociation, when we say structural dissociation, we're not just talking about the structure of the personality. We're talking about the literal structures of the brain. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The neuroarchitecture yes. of yes. your brain. Yeah, the actual yeah. stuff that we could poke at with a yeah. finger, yeah. like the yep. real structure Which, of like, ourselves. That's a whole other topic yeah. of yes. how beautiful that is, the fact that this is both like not real and yeah, real conceptual at the same time. and oh, anatomical there's yeah. layers yeah. yeah we're not going to talk about fractals right okay. now <laughs> okay i'll breathe 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 seven so trees then, yeah Caleb, seven, seven trees. trees so then over time based on these experiences you have this moment where the reflected appraisal of an other either confirms that this affective circuit worked yes. and was um uh able to be utilized and was okay for the situation to mitigate Danger to mitigate or, danger or meet a need. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or, based on your reflected appraisal of the other, appraisal of the other, the that system is shamed and yep. dissociated. Then, yes. yes. So then, that system is only going to come in the context where that fear was embedded yes. in the deep roots of that tree. Now, as you go up the tree, you get more complex. Yes. And when you get to the leaves, you when you look at a tree, the leaves are so like overlapped. Yes. That you almost can't see through them. Yes. That's the how the, yeah, yes. that's how the associations in your brain are at that cortical region. Right. 
they're so like connected and nuanced and complex. And when you get all the way up that, that circuit, that affective circuit up to the cortical regions, you're dealing with some really abstract critical thought. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's dependent upon that lower brain region, whether it's integrated or disintegrated, present or dissociated. And I'm going to add a layer because I'm about ready to cry over here with how beautiful this imagery is. And if you think I'm kidding, I'm actually not. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we need the camera. You're really emotional about this stuff. So one of the beautiful things about using the tree analogy is this. The real lived experience of a tree is that it never is growing in isolation. It's always in community with the other trees around it. And deep underground... Where we can barely... You're about to... Oh, we're going there, you guys. The roots are entangled with each other. And they are entangled in specific ways. Based on the environment that the trees are growing in. The forest, the whole forest. Those trees are constantly in communication with each other through that root network. You can just say what it is. (laughs) Through the mycelium network. (laughs) Nailed it. So if, if you don't know what mycelium is, it is Should the, Google it. yeah, yes, do Google it. Pictures. Yes. And look at the pictures because here's one of the <clears throat> most fascinating things of my entire lived life. Okay. Is that the underground fungal web yep. that helps all trees communicate with each other. Every single, every one. single organism. Yeah plant organism plugged into the ground that is plugged into the ground is connected by the fungal web that helps the trees not only chemically communicate with each other but now because of science and how incredibly cool science is we know that trees share with each other yeah they share information but they also share nutrients they share warnings they share everything they take care of each other in fact They keep stumps around. If you ever wonder as you're wandering through the forest, like, why is that stump still alive? There's like one little green bit. Like, clearly it's not doing anything for the forest. They literally keep the old tree stumps around in the forest simply because they are a repository of forest wisdom. I'm dying over here with how beautiful the symbolism is. (laughs) So here's the thing, you guys. Memories of fear. Memories. Memories. Bruce Perry. Bruce Perry is beautiful. He was talking about the trees in the mycelium web and he didn't even know it. So, Can I make a correlate between the mycelium web and your brain anatomy? Oh, oh, no. I'm going there right now. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm right there, Caleb. Keep, Guys, keep, stay we're way me. too up right now. Okay, well, I'm going to come down right after <laughs> this. Okay. Because we got to get to tertiary. Yeah, we are. Um, so the mycelium web, if you get on Google and you look at a picture of it, and then you Google an image of the human nervous system, specifically the fascia, which is the layer that lays over our musculature that is entirely animated by electricity, right? It is the thing that makes us an electrical being, right? It is our peripheral nervous system. This fascial tissue looks identical to the mycelium web. You can barely tell the difference visually. They are the same stuff. It is breathtakingly beautiful. Like, I have held fascia, and, you know, I'll tell the story of why that was a thing one time. (laughs) Like, a large piece of fascial tissue, it looks identical. It is the most magnificent thing. I could wax eloquent about mycelium and fascia for a very long time. Mm. To your point, we need to come on back down. But I love this analogy so much because the intermingling that happens at the root 
and then the separation that happens at the trunk. Distinction. The distinction mm -hmm. between the different affective circuits. Just like we can see separate trees in the forest, but do not be fooled. They are always in communication with each other, mm -hmm. both at the very bottom and then again at the very top. Very top. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a perfect perfect place to come back down. Okay, while you're because talking, we've, I'm going to sit over here and we've done cry the a little. Primary, <laughs> oh, we going. can hold space for that. Thank you. Um, we've got the primary, which is one EP, one ANP. We've got the secondary, which is complex. one ANP and two or more yeah. EPs. And I really you... like the circle with mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. e EPs yeah. outside. Cause yep. now, you know, you imagine that space with secondary structural dissociation, one ANP in the middle, multiple EPs mm -hmm. now. Now in tert tertiary dissociation, which is what Vanderhart and colleagues would um, specifically tie to dissociative identity disorder mm -hmm. in a very strict sense. What, and that's them? That's them. Th that's yes. their, yeah. yes. Yeah. That's not a universally accepted definition, yeah. but, but this is their work. Yeah, definition. and their definition is that that is multiple ANPs. Mm -hmm. Inside that circle. Inside that circle with multiple EPs. EPs. Intrusive EPs, that's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. So very complex. Yeah. Which, structure. if you remember back to the beginning of this episode, we talked about the A and P as the way the person experiences themselves. So, if that means now in tertiary structural dissociation, we have multiple A and Ps, that means mm -hmm. there's multiple discrete ways the person experiences themselves that are then themselves subjected to the intrusion of an EP. EPs, yes. And the, the complexity of working with DID with this particular working definition of what that means is each ANP is going to have a different experience of the intrusion of an EP. So I will have conflicting feelings about the presence and the intrusion of these EPs when I am in a DID state. And that is part of what adds these layers of complexity of treatment to a presentation like that is I'm not just dealing with that one A and P with one set of reactions to those intrusions. I have multiple reactions occurring at one time and multiple relationships within the self to be navigating at all times. Yeah. Mm. And then multiple relationships between therapist and client because normally we're tracking our, our relationship with that one A and P and then welcoming in the EPs to be integrated in that way. In the presentation of DID, I am navigating the complexities of relationship between multiple ANPs and me as the therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting that there's like a there's a quality of their rigidity in interpreting how they see the primary, secondary, tertiary, and where maybe we and some other colleagues would maybe nuance it a little bit mm -hmm. without being so rigidly tied to yeah. um mm -hmm the psychopathologies and stuff like yes. that. Um, but I think there's like a, there's something to be said about how, you know, structured their layout is. Yeah. And yes. There's a benefit to that. Yeah. Well, and I think when you're working with a case, running it through that lens is going to give you some really good insight and mm -hmm. information. So even though, you know, just like any model, any theoretical model, it's not going to give you 100% of the picture, but it's going to give you one fractal face of the picture. That's going to be really useful to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I just want to say that in transitioning, one of the key factors in the maintenance of this structure, the dissociative structure, is that the ANP is somewhat avoidant yeah, and conditioned dismissive. to and, be avoidant. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, seeking consistent equilibrium within mm -hmm. the context of their being. And there are these intrusions from mm -hmm. the EP. Mm -hmm. And 
in therapy, this is kind of where they go with the article and, and what I think is important to talk about next is is the, their face treatment and how to mitigate the activation that the client will feel as we foster some dependency and seek to integrate some of these emotional parts to mm-hmm. create a whole adaptive structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so they propose a three-phase treatment model. Mm-hmm. Um, Just very, I mean, classic to much of the field understanding of a phase-oriented treatment approach to complex yeah. PTSD. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very consistent with kind of traumatology as a whole and how yes. we... So not new this. information here, yeah. but yeah. some of the nuances given the first half of the article. Mm-hmm. Yeah, based important. on dependency yes. very much. Yeah. So I'll just go through the first three phases and give like just a very Little small snippets. snippet of mm-hmm. what those are. And then what I'd want to do is just kind of get your guys's opinion on the phobias that they present mm-hmm. as part of these phases gorgeous uh, specifically phobias around dependency mm-hmm. so uh, the phase one is symptom reduction and stabilization um, phase two is treatment of traumatic memories and phase three is personality reintegration and rehabilitation. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to note that they're not talking about this as a linear step-by-step process. That's right. But yeah. one that is circular, that it can be uh, unequal in the time it takes in each and how quickly we go back and forth mm-hmm. between them. Mm-hmm. Um, typically in phases, I know at least for me, it's easy to assume a linear progression of phase one, phase two, phase three. But the way they're intending it is a circular yeah. understanding of phases. Well, and in a and a responsive, model, absolutely meaning, attuned and responsive. Yeah, yeah, because you know there's some some factors about uh, well, particularly in phase three when we're moving into um, that reintegration and rehabilitation of the whole personality. It's very likely that in that process we're going to encounter some material that may send us back to phase two necessarily, right. and so staying responsive and adaptive to what we're seeing, but understanding these different uh, spaces. So I like to think of you know what space am I occupying with the client rather than what phase you know what part of the journey are we on? Yeah. Well, we're just moving you know dancing between these different spaces rather than walking down a straight road. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, do you have anything else, Bridger, you want to say about just the general structure of the phases? You I'm ready to jump like, into okay, phobias. Let's get into yeah. it. So I'm going to kind of just walk us through. I'll just propose the phobia that she proposes in the phases, and then we yeah. can just kind of... I think one some one uh, reflective point is that the phobias, uh, at least when I read through this, the phobias really are affirming mm-hmm. in what your chief task is as the therapeutic alliance between the therapist yes. and the client of what we're really working on. Yeah. Um, and why do certain experiences tend to emerge at different points in the process? Yeah. It's very reflective of the phobias why, that we're contending with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And why is that somewhat consistent across mm-hmm. client mm-hmm. and therapist yeah. um, that these phobias tend to come up? Why is that? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the first phobia that they put in phase one, which phase one, by the way, in, in BHC would be, and our model SIP would be anchoring and, anchor. safer. Mm-hmm. That's right. anchoring and safety. That's right. Um, over and over. Over mm-hmm. and over. Always coming back to it, returning right. to it. Yeah. Um, so, so what can we experience in our anchoring, yes. our, as Steele and Ben Hart would say, in phase one? Well, I appreciate you asking, Bridger. The first, <laughs> the first phobia you can expect to encounter is the phobia of attachment and contact with the therapist. Mm. 
and and she goes on to say or they go on to say that the phobias typically manifest either in the patient maximizing or minimizing attachment with the therapist Mm -hmm. according to the attachment style prevalent gosh i love this article so much they're just putting into such plain language what is so universal in my lived experience as a therapist that as you as you encounter one another in the room immediately your attachment um your attachment strategies and their behaviors are enacted Mm -hmm. so as you as you encounter one another that dismissive that preoccupied or that disorganized structure is going to emerge as the way that you are interpreting and understanding and meeting me as the Mm -hmm. therapist and how I am and meeting you as the client. Yeah. Yeah. And I think of like early on in treatment, how much my, um, my questions and orientation is very much focused upon how they are mentalizing me, experiencing me and then providing feedback of how I'm also experiencing them and, and having just, I mean, we'll talk about content. So why do you do that in response to knowing that the phobia of attachment and contact with the therapist is primary to phase one? Yeah, I, I didn't, I'm not doing this with this in mind, but I think just naturally it feels very important Mm -hmm for me because I have an understanding that the brain is going to organize based on a model of the other and I've become that whether I mm-hmm. like that or not yes. as a therapist and I have certain connotations around me like mm-hmm. I kind of visualize like if I'm the client looking at me I've got these little like bubbles around me yep. they're kind of categories <laughs> Here's of what who I am, I am. I'm mm-hmm. like an expert and yeah. um, I'm going to give advice figure. I'm going to tell them what to do yeah. and blah 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 yes or you get into some cultural touchy ones. You're a straight white male. Uh-huh. Um, you're young. Yeah. You're, and you start to fill in those things. And so what I want to do is I want to be checking in with how those potential categories and implicit organizations of how they're perceiving me and what I'm saying, I want to check in and see how those are affecting my mm-hmm. offerings. Yeah. So one of the, the ways that that phobia of attachment shows up in relation to the concept of dependency as the therapist this is our first moment where we find ourselves wondering am i making it too much about me am i fostering too much dependency Mm -hmm. on me by making a session about how they're experiencing me oh man melissa i love that you went there well yeah yeah i was thinking uh, so much about how this like on the drive over here, I was like, oh, we need to talk about how this is not just the client. Right. That the therapist Absolutely. is going to encounter Wait this a phobia. Second. You're talking about therapists having an attachment phobia? Oh. Yes. Oh, wait, wait. Did grad school make us really phobic of attaching with her clients? Yes. Oh. This is when we need the cameras. <laughs> so that we can all collectively just... Turn. Do a slow pan, Turn and look. zoom. Yeah, yeah, so if if you are reacting to what we're saying, I apologize for our flippancy and our facetiousness only a little bit. Um, the reality is, is that most of us, our educational experience really did scare the crap out of us about issues of dependency and you gotta fostering. you got to have boundaries. Yes, yes. And that is true. <laughs> but boundaries are not to block attachment. Let me say it again. Boundaries are not to block attachment. They are to allow 
the appropriate growth of attachment and intimacy. Mm. So that is what we're talking about here. That when we are having these really open, honest, explicit conversations about how are you experiencing me and how am I experiencing you, we're putting up, you know, you know, like when you go bowling and they put those little bumpers the bump, there yep. so that you can't like accidentally go off the rails and like, you know, yeah. yeah, like we're, we're putting some bumpers in the relationship that say, you are going to have a relationship with me. We're going to attach. We're That's- going to be in deep experience of each other. And by talking about it openly, by making it an honest, explicit conversation, that is a way that we can do clear and healthy boundaries. Rather than clients running into our boundaries after they accidentally do something that's inappropriate and now we have an attachment rupture and a repair, but by the way, we're not allowed to talk about attachment anyway because that would be making it about us. What the heck? How do we do therapy in that space? As opposed to, let's talk about it on the front end. Let's talk about what it's going to feel in and like. Throughout. Yeah, to to enter into this dynamic and this kind of relationship, it is about bringing the things that we're never allowed to talk about to a space where we're actually allowed to talk about them. Yeah. If if we're not doing that in therapy, yes. if we're running the same phobic communication patterns that they experience yeah. everywhere else, where I'm never allowed to actually talk about this stuff because we're all so dang nervous about attaching and needing each other. Yeah. Right. And and we want to be independent and all of that. We do our clients a major disservice. Yeah. Well, and we actually we actually run the risk of further augmenting their dysfunction yes. and their patterns because and we didn't get to this in the first episode and we still haven't yet because there's so much. But um, one of the key ingredients uh, that the authors of this um article talk about in trauma therapy is integrative capacity Mm -hmm. which integrative capacity is one's ability to um, make sense of and integrate uh, lived experience especially when it is traumatic Mm -hmm. so weave into my reality exactly Mm -hmm. so what Mel is talking about that a person may have gone through so much of life where that was shamed in them the Mm -hmm. ability to express attachment needs and to actually experience attachment that is perpetuating disintegrative uh experience so integrative capacity is now lower which means we're running more of a risk of of uh being um overwhelmed by something to the degree that we develop ptsd that's right yeah Yeah. which is also like the second and and they're so closely tied in this article but the second phobia would be phobia of mental contents Mm -hmm. which is the expression or experience or ability to sit with your um, feelings wishes needs thoughts fantasies sensations um so (laughs) i paused i said um with a big pause because (laughs) Melissa was did looking I, at me as if like, like, oh my gosh, I just thought of something because yeah. I did. So, so I think I referenced um, a book on here, and you guys are going to roll your eyes at me. Here we go, ready, Damasio, right? There so, is. in <laughs> where's the camera? I know. Um, yeah, uh, the the feeling of what is right is a beautiful book. Um, and feeling of what happens? Of what happens? You're right. Um, he's talking about the different levels of consciousness and the way that feeling becomes conscious to us in the process that that goes through. And so this idea of mental contents, Mm. right? The, what he alludes to, well, not really alludes to what he demonstrates. He's a neuroscientist and he demonstrates this neurobiologically that in order for something to be integrated into our lived experience, we have to be conscious of it. 
And the consciousness has to be um, experienced by being made aware of the internal feeling state that my body is currently experiencing with assistance of making sense of that, mm. right? So all of our experience is producing what he calls images. Images could be thoughts. It could be actual images in our head. It could be any symbolic internal representation of the experience that we're having. And that's happening all the time. But we have to be aware of and conscious of those internal images, which to your point, Caleb, means that we have to be able to tolerate them. We have to be able to experience them and go, it's okay that I am experiencing this. Mm -hmm. And if I can be okay with whatever the experience of that feeling is, now I actually have a bridge to be able to integrate it into the rest of me. But if yeah. I can't be conscious of it, I cannot integrate it. Yeah, yeah. which is like where um, uh, psychoanalysis and even EMDR mm -hmm. and their sort of like non-judgmental yeah. mindfulness of kind of yeah. what you're Just experiencing and noticing yeah. and saying it kind of helps get over that phobia yes. of like there's no right or wrong of how you're experiencing me yeah. as a therapist right. or the things that you're wishing for mm -hmm. desiring longing for feeling yeah. experiencing there's no right or wrong yeah a really practical phrase that i use with clients a lot to to help them with this particular phobia is don't panic about your panic right like it's okay to be overwhelmed by feeling it's not as dangerous as we've been made to believe. Mm -hmm. Most of our previous lived experience of being overwhelmed by affect was as a very young child where we had no assistance and no support in tolerating that affect. And then even worse, sometimes we had caregivers that panicked about our panic, mm -hmm. right? If you guys think about clients that you have that really, really struggle with this, sometimes it's not that they had an abusive parent it's often that they had an anxious parent, mm -hmm. a highly anxious parent that every time they had a really intense affect or big emotion, the parent panicked and immediately tried to stop the emotion, explain it away, uh, distract them from it, mm -hmm. etc. And therefore, the child gets this message of, oh my gosh, my internal experiences are intolerable. Mm -hmm. They're dangerous. Mm -hmm. I, I can't just sit in them. I can't just experience them. And I certainly can't share them with another because especially if I love somebody, I yes. need to protect them because they're mm -hmm. made very nervous by my big affect. Yeah. And so helping our clients learn like, no, no, no I'm, I'm okay being here with you and the intensity Absolutely. of this. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. You can get angry, like get real angry. No, more angry, even more angry than that. I'm yeah. good with it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and inviting that and, and teaching them that they can sit in that and not be overwhelmed by the overwhelm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that goes into the third and final phobia yeah. of this phase one, which is phobia of dissociative personalities. Mm -hmm. And I love what, Melissa, you're saying is there's this, in the dependency, and Bridger and I use this so much, but like the idea of intersubjective, yeah. mm -hmm. intersubjective space, intersubjectivity becomes really important here because my parts, if I'm a regulated therapist, mm -hmm. can not be fearful or phobic yes. of their parts that their oh, system so is important. is afraid of yeah. and by being like welcoming mm -hmm. i'm can neurobiologically activate some mirror neuron patterns yeah. that allow them then to which again is back to that harry stack sullivan yeah. the re reflected appraisal like that part can then be at least a part of the mm -hmm. conversation that's right. not integrated mm -hmm. um not um not transitioned but mm -hmm. It is just now, okay, you're aware, which would be like in Fraser's table. Like yes. They've come to the room. They've come to the table. 
they're here and we're not afraid of them. Right. Um, so I, I'm curious about your guys's lived experience of this because I feel like there are some um, parts of our clients and parts of ourselves that we are very prone to rejecting and disconnecting from. Mm. My top two that I would say I see uh, almost like everybody do this to some degree or another. Now, this is specifically for women, which is why I'm kind of asking you guys, is this the same for men? Um, with all of the female clients that I work with, and frankly, a lot of the consultation that I do with other therapists, the two aspects of self that get rejected and dissociated the most and therefore are not well tolerated when our clients present with it are anger and sexuality. So when rage shows up, uh, no, <laughs> right. There's made like, you can be mad, but don't like, don't like express rage, right? There's a line here, right? And that line is determined by the therapist level of comfort with their own felt rage. Mm -hmm. And we impose that restriction, that glass ceiling on our client's expression of rage, right? And everything that I just said can be also applied to sensuality and sexuality, uh -huh. mm -hmm. right? So I think just this week I was doing a consultation with a psychologist and one of her clients, it was around sexuality. And I was asking <laughs> some questions. She's like, oh, I never really thought to ask that. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of a page one question when it comes to this sort of issue. Uh -huh. And we're like poking around at the issue. And we sort of get to this really awkward moment where we both realize Oh, it's because you're really uncomfortable with your own sexuality. Mm. Like, oh, this isn't a real small box for you, right? And it's not for me. So I'm asking all kinds of interesting questions because I have no glass ceiling when it comes to sexuality and talk about it probably too much. Um, and so, <laughs> is there such a thing? Thank you. Right. Um, so I think that that, that self-awareness of what are the, the boundaries and limitations that I have put on my own acceptance of these aspects of self and then how am I accidentally imposing those on my clients as well? So I'm curious for you guys, do you see those two being the most common rejected parts of self for men, or is it a little bit different? I am, I have somewhat of a split. Because okay. I, <laughs> I, I work in a treatment facility in which I'm working primarily with sexually mm -hmm. abusive youth. Mm -hmm. And so sexuality is actually like a fairly like regular conversation, mm -hmm. and it's why they're there. Mm -hmm. What I see is that oftentimes their emphasis on sexuality was because they have dissociative rage and grief. Yes. Which would be the two that I so, often see are dissociated. Rage and grief, yeah. You're talking about, um, at least what's lighting up in my head, is how I understand... Um, I, I don't know. This is going to nuance maybe too much, so we can come back to it. But the, you know, within anger and sexuality, I see an apparently normal part mm -hmm. and one, if not multiple EPs for each of those yeah. and everybody. Yeah. Um, so what somebody, you know, even to that psychologist, the ANP of sexuality is like you said, very small box, very rigid, very tiny. You know, it's not, the identity is not very large mm -hmm. in it, but there are many EPs mm -hmm. around that mm -hmm. part that tend to, uh, you know, the ANP is very dismissive of, right. I'm not going to recognize that. Mm -hmm. um, but the EP might intrude and that's when they feel dirty or they feel, um, you know, wrong for having right. that desire or maybe fearful of having that of like, oh, what does that mean? So that's kind of the way that I see it. Um, for me with with men, um, you know, there, there are 
dissociated structurally dissociated parts in both of those mm-hmm. across the board for mm-hmm. in my experience as a therapist so mm-hmm. i think it's both yeah yeah but i think that you know that concept of being aware of our own yes uh, rejected parts mm-hmm. of self and the way that we accidentally put those limitations on clients is a really important mm-hmm. awareness to hold yeah mm-hmm. yeah very much um okay let's move on to phase two because we got to keep going um phase two is let me see here i need to find my way on this paper all the flipping this is a beefy article this it's, is a, uh, <laughs> it's yes. like 40 yeah, pages long do you want the phobias my friend yeah the phobias of phase two a phase two actually uh-huh yeah. 95 yep oh. you've got phobia of traumatic uh memories yeah phobia of attachment particularly related to insecure attachment to the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you move into phase three. Okay. So this is where you'd get to more of like the deeper restructuring and and addressing like where these dissociative tendencies Mm -hmm. emerged from. Mm -hmm. And that can seem pretty turbulent. Well, and I think the, the phobia that clients experience when you know, okay, so let's say we've successfully gone through phase one, we've anchored in safety, our therapeutic, you know, attachment with them is really solid, etc. Now they're faced with the reality of, well, oh, crap, I got to go back and re experience the reason why I struggle in the first place, right. And so the phobia is of feeling again, what they felt back then. Yeah, right. That's what they're avoiding. Keep in mind that this is a circular process. So we are still dealing with phase one. Oh, yeah, phobias. We are still dealing with this fear of of attachment with you Mm -hmm. even contact with you, uh, those um, dissociated parts. And even uh, in that space, the fear of the mental contents, right? Um, you're still dealing with that to some degree, like you're still kind of negotiating that space Mm -hmm. with the parts as you encounter phase two phobias. I I think the phase two phobias are just the more specific version. Yes. As we go into memory. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, what we, what we encounter in clients when they come in is the behavioral manifestation of the previous trauma. And then in phase two, we're getting into the actual trauma, but we're still contending with the behavioral manifestation of it because it's all still there, right? We haven't healed it um, just by practicing and creating some space around those strategies. Hopefully we've at least given them a chance at selecting a new strategy, but we have definitely not eradicated the old strategies they're yeah. all still very very present yeah. and i always kind of imagine them like they've got their nose pressed against the glass going i'm yep. right here if you need me just so you know right like if that new strategy yeah. of like actually being in attachment if yeah. that doesn't pan out for you i'm right here put me in coach right i'm right yeah i'm so ready to uh-huh. do it the old way yeah and so when we move into phase two we're contending with all of those old strategies you know, ready and waiting to go and also attempting to activate the trauma memories for the purpose of reprocessing and release. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In uh, SIP, our model, somatic integration and processing, this would be like the launch from the anchor and we launch out into the past, Uh into the, what would be formulated by adaptive information Mm -hmm. processing. Yes. What past experiences are shaping present um, reactions and behaviors and when we launch back into that, the memory, 
there's going to be these trip wires and these things Land where mines. they may oh, yeah. they may hit the eject button on that yeah. and we have to come back to now it. we're right back to now phase we're phase one, one. yep yeah. we've got to con- we've got to contend with the phobias that reignited mm-hmm. based on us going to a place that felt mm-hmm. too much mm-hmm. or too soon or but also okay so the beauty of moving from phase one into phase two is identical to the danger right is that we're taking it to the more specific and in that experience the client has the opportunity to have a incredible moment of self-understanding and Mm self-compassion that they didn't have previously because these are the conversations and the experiences where we start to say this is why yes right all yeah all this stuff that we've been talking about, the the way that you've been, you know, handling all of the struggles that you've been going through, the way that you've been trying to avoid intimacy while still getting your needs met, all of this creativity that you've been doing, here's why you had to do that in the first place. And it made total sense. Yeah. By getting into the specifics, we start to really, you know, expand the client's understanding of this is what built me. And no longer do I have to walk around going, oh, my God, I'm you know so dumb. Why do I keep doing the same thing over and over? Nope, it actually makes total sense. Because see that landmine, that memory of your dad right there? That's why you do that. Yeah. That's why you panic the and way that, you do. The authors talk about that in two kind of parts. We, skip, we kind of assumed the preparation, but then there's the synthesis mm-hmm. and the integration mm-hmm. of those components. That um, – what happened and why you responded the way that you did here's the why and here's how adaptive it was and here's how it it's okay to call it a part of you to incorporate or integrate it into the a and p right it doesn't have to exist still as an ep it can come in and now be a part of you because it's beautiful Mm -hmm. it's beautiful Mm -hmm. adaptive Well, and neurobiologically, in whatever modality you're using, you know, we at BHC, we favor EMDR just because it's incredibly efficient. Um, But whatever modality you're using to help the nervous system reprocess and release the affect state that's held in that, um, that traumatic memory, when that is released, that is a moment where new integration is possible. Right. Because in that moment, all of that electricity, like literally you guys were releasing electricity that's being held in the nervous system. So when we get that uh, electrical release coming out of the nervous system, that can be utilized to aid in integration. Like at the same moment that there's this profound relief from the intensity of the trauma that can help them uh, reintegrate that experience into the rest of themselves in a, in a remarkably beautiful way. Yeah. In EMDR, we talk about how sometimes it feels like we're doing magic because we just have these like really cool and spontaneous moments of, wow, well, I couldn't have said that better, right? But it's just kind of emerging out of the client's experience. Mm-hmm. And it's almost always right on the tails of a really big energetic release after they have you know come into an encounter with a traumatic memory and been able to move through that. And after they do that, then we get this insight and this beautiful self-awareness and the nervous system moves forward in their developmental timeline and gets unstuck from that pathway. And it's just really, really profound. Yeah. yeah that w- and that's called like memory reconsolidation. Yes. Come on. Mm-hmm. Um, neurons that fire together, wire, wire together, Hebb's axiom. So then if you're activating these circuits of fear or right. panic, and then you're also tethering them to the activation of safety and connection, bam. Bam. We got a reconsolidated yes. network. Yep. And now can be reintegrated into A and P. Yep. And also they just had a lived experience of I can feel 
all of that affect in the present in the present moment in the presence of a therapeutic alliance somebody that cares about me somebody that i care about feel safe feeling it and then get relief from it oh that's exactly what was supposed to happen when i was three yeah and, and now i can yeah. believe in it happening that's right again that's right mm-hmm. yeah. because you, i have a neurobiological template for yes. that you develop a heavier anchor mm-hmm. and a longer tether oh come on oh, Caleb. yeah geez <laughs> You're rocking it with the word pictures tonight. Nailing it. Someone's feeling safe. Someone is Someone's safe. in ventral activation. So let's jump right, to yeah. phase three. Yeah, the okay, phobia is there. We gotta, and then um, we gotta go. we'll talk about some practical. Uh, one thing I will say just because we're here, um, there's too much to talk about in this article. And there's some things we like. We could do a third counter, and maybe for them. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also some things like countertransference, boundaries that I think oh, yeah. we will hearken back to and say, this was also in this article. Yes. And we'll talk about it in a different article. Yeah. Um, so, listeners, if you do read the article and you're like, what the heck? You Why didn't they talk about these? Yeah. We're trying to be kind and yeah. not do seven episodes on this one yeah, article. We've already got three hours in this <laughs> article. Yeah. Worth yeah. every minute. Absolutely. Yeah. And more. Yeah. So, let's jump to phase three and the phobia is there. So, we have phobia of intimacy, phobia of normal life. Sorry, can you say the phase name again? Mm-hmm. Phase three. Yeah, it's personality, reintegration, and rehabilitation. Yes. Yes. So this is where the, like, let's take outside of therapy what we're doing in here Mm -hmm. with all of phase one and phase two going on. So now we're all systems go. We've got three phases enacted at the same Mm -hmm. time. So that's what, to me, makes sense of the fear of intimacy Mm -hmm. because there's this almost timid childlike effect of, well, now I'm feeling better about the therapist, but I don't know if I could go out and... And do it out there. Right. Yeah, this is a positive objectification of the therapist. That's right. Others aren't like you. Right. Yes. Right. So then you start Nobody's to get. Nobody's going to accept me like you do. Yeah. Because you yeah. have to. Because I pay you. Mm-hmm. If you guys ever get that. Or because you're a therapist. <laughs> yeah, that's their nice way of saying <laughs> yes. it. It's just like, well, you have to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you're a therapist. Well, that's, that's a nice. Uh, thank you for objectifying me like uh-huh. that. But mm-hmm. maybe, and just maybe, I actually mean what I'm saying. Yeah, and maybe just maybe I don't actually do this for the money yeah <laughs> that one feels most true that feels that's real right. true to anybody that's a therapist yeah uh-huh. well yeah so those the more mature forms of attachment being the example of the the phobia of intimacy i think that you know thinking about that experience that they have of being able to feel their feelings and be accepted and be nurtured while they're feeling them. It is a reproduction or recreation of what they should have had as a child, right? But that's not the same thing as then growing up into more reciprocal and um, peer-like relationships that still have this element of intimacy. So now they're facing the challenge of, okay, can I tolerate the affect of other people? Can I tolerate it when they get mad or rageful? Can I tolerate their expressions of sexuality? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a totally different deal. It's great mm-hmm. when somebody offers it to me. Can I turn around and then begin to offer it in reciprocal intimate yeah. relationships from adult to adult? Totally different deal. So maybe I'm afraid of that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think there's like a real conversation that needs to be had when you think about um, being honest with a client about relationships mm-hmm. and intimacy is has a fundamental core element of risk in it. Yes. And to somewhat just own that risk yeah. and to say, well, that's okay. If, if something goes wrong with intimacy out there, we always have the anchor, but we're not going to be satisfied with just the anchor. Right. 
we need to explore the seas Mm -hmm. and and experience the world and Mm -hmm. um, but we can always come back but there's there is that element of risk right and i'm not going to lie to you and say there's not right that would be disingenuous well yeah and and lying to our clients in that way they know we're lying we know we're lying it, it doesn't work for us Never to face things good. like you know well it's safe to go have relationships with whomever no, go do not. that now uh that may <laughs> we be got some problems that may be the dissociative part on the therapist yeah, yeah. a wishful a wishful yes. part yeah mm-hmm. i wish that the world was safe enough for my clients to actually go out and have the kinds of relationships that they want to have but reality is they can't and they're not going to get the same response that they do in therapy. So how do we nurture them and be that safe anchor for them, but also prepare them for the reality of what they're going to face yeah. and help them become their own anchor in safety well, and, and internalize what they've experienced with us? Yeah. And this is where the authors go back into talking about the different forms of dependency yeah. in and throughout this phase one, two, and three, mm-hmm. you know, they talk about how there might be, um, dependence on the therapist or, um, counter dependence where they're mm-hmm. pushing away from yeah. trying to keep the change from happening because it's too intolerable right. again to that integrative capacity there. It's not high enough mm-hmm. yet. And that's where the authors say it's okay to return back to the more, uh, primary, the phase one and phase two, right. uh, forms. And I, I love the really practical ways that they talk about this, um, in terms of, what kind of access do we give clients to us? Yeah. And how is that access communicated? Right. So those are different and both are super important. So what they're talking about is let's say we have a client and they come in and they've got a lot of attachment trauma and the original setup is I'm going to see you once a week for one hour. And we start in the therapeutic journey and things are going along and we start getting uh, texts and phone calls between sessions on a regular basis. And after a few weeks of getting a phone call like every other day between session, we're starting to feel like, well, geez, I need to put up better boundaries with this client. They're not respecting my boundaries. I don't want to foster too much dependency because clearly they're getting too dependent on me. Oh, or is the therapy working? Are they actually overcoming their phobia of attachment and allowing some of that need for dependency to be expressed and felt? Mm. And so if in that moment I move into like hard boundary push mode, I'm like, no, you cannot ever text me. You cannot ever call me. Then suddenly we're going to reinforce this idea that any expression of a need for dependency is going to result in rejection. So let's not do that. (laughs) In this article, what they suggest is having a very plain um, and upfront conversation about clearly your system is feeling a need for more access to me. Then we're getting in our session. Yes, then we're getting in our one hour weekly session. So how can we make it predictable for you? How can we make your system feel like you're going to get enough access to me that you feel safe in our relationship? What would it feel like to you if we have two sessions a week instead of one, if the client can afford it, because that's a really real factor. Um, And I have done that a lot. I have have had uh, clients that present with DID where for phase one treatment, we were doing two two two-hour sessions every week. Mm Okay, let me say that again. Mm-hmm. Two two-hour sessions every week. That's Mondays, four hours. Four a hours week. of therapy. Yeah. So Mondays two hours. Thursday two hours. That's a lot of time together. <laughs> Just four days in between. Yeah. Very nice. And what happened is a very very normal trajectory for somebody with that kind of presentation. As we went through, 
we eventually uh, we did a little experiment and figured out like okay you can do a one two hour session but i'm gonna hold this time block for you and if you need the extra time it's still here for you now at that time i had way more flexibility in my schedule i could not offer that now (laughs) but if we can if we can make that offering we want to so we left it on the books for about two months and then she said you know i feel like i'm i'm okay she did utilize that spot a few times and then we drop it down one more and then we go to you know i think now we're at yeah we do two hours once a month now nice right and that and we're in phase three but it was a very steady and clear thing but it was talked about the whole way through you can do the same thing with phone calls Mm -hmm. if they're feeling the need to crisis call you all the time that might be a system that's saying hey you know what works really well to get attachment needs met to have a crisis people pay attention to me if i'm in crisis Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna have a crisis so that i have something to say when i have an attachment need so you're talking about acknowledging that strategy and then giving them an alternative means of connecting besides a crisis that's right yes that's right so an example of that and i did a different uh, client with did our version of this was once a week i requested okay that some of her child parts that we were doing a lot of work with would color me a picture and take a picture and send it and i told her in session whenever you do that my response will be to send you a smiley face emoji to know that I was really happy to see it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Beautiful. Super boundaried, yep. clear, explicit. It took me a millisecond to send that emoji. Also, I did really enjoy the pictures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was very mm-hmm. sweet. Um, and so giving them these points of contact, suddenly I'm getting you know hand-drawn pictures of kitties rather than suicidal phone calls. Yes. And now we have a different strategy emerging. Yes. The authors uh, throw in um, multiple whole quotes from Dallenberg, which mm-hmm. if you're Great. ever interested, Dallenberg 2000, uh, amazing. But there's one uh, section where they say that in response to these um, separation cries, which is another um, kind of echo back to Ponksep and some affective neuroscience, but they said in response to this, the therapist needs to shout the attachment uh, to the tra- to the trauma client and whisper mm. their comments about the client's disturbing and distancing behaviors. Yes. Um, the main point must be the attachment yes. and the beauty in the expression of an attachment behavior. Mm-hmm. And then in the intimacy of the therapeutic alliance, whisper mm-hmm. the disturbance yeah. of yeah. the behavior. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, a practical phrase that I think encapsulates that is this phrase. We shout, I'm here for you. And we whisper, and you don't have to do that in order to get me to pay attention to you. Right? right? I'm here. No matter how you're presenting, I'm still going to be here. You can't scare me away. <laughs> but also, you don't need to have a crisis mm-hmm. in order to get me to pay attention. Like, I'm here for the kitty pictures too. I'm here just for you. And that, those experiences with clients are what begin to reshape those strategies and help them replace the old way of trying to connect and sort of skirt around that need for dependency and actually engage in real relationship that is much more transferable to life outside therapy. Mm-hmm. I think almost just landing on that posture, yeah. both mm-hmm. like saying it uh, linguistically, like as the therapist saying that and having those experiences, 
but also just having that posture mm-hmm. of, I see you yelling that with your, yeah, with I'm right your, here. I'm right here <laughs> making a lot of pro social engagement, yes. eye contact and, you know, being very emotion, emotional in your presentation in a regulated mm-hmm. manner. And then also saying, and you don't have to do that mm-hmm. to get my attention. Yeah. I see you. Yeah. You already had it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the uh, movie you had me at hello or whatever? <laughs> That's right. That's we should just start saying that to our clients. That's beautiful. I'd like to end with a quote from Dallenberg. Yes. If we could, which they do. So I think we should. It's appropriate. Um, in the conclusion, which there's so much to get to in this article, but um, in conclusion, they say that uh, as we encourage deep and at times regressive and dependent relationships to develop, to facilitate transference and therefore deeper change, we also implicitly agree to honor the depth and felt life-saving quality of that attachment. Dependency and therapy. Mm-hmm. Life-saving. Mm-hmm. It is the therapy. All right, guys. Any Caleb, you got Final anything? concluding thoughts? Man, that's just a good way to end I it. I know, I think so too. I think um, encouraging listeners to always kind of wrestle with the idea of dependency yes, mm-hmm. and dance with in it. themselves and their clients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You won't conquer it. No. Cause it's, it's not presentation in any client is different. Yeah. But you can dance with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.